thank you so much for your welcome, Dean Still. We're grateful, and uh, happy birthday, Still. It's great to be here on CBF Day, and thank you, Jacob, and all of you who have helped to lead us in worship. I'm proud to be among you today, now. This is the question I had to ask myself before I came today. And it's the same question that you, if you are going to be serving in a congregation and aspire to stand week by week behind the sacred desk and hold forth for 20 odd minutes or so, and sometimes, don't you know, they are odd, those 20 minutes, you will have to ask yourself this question too. What to preach? As young preachers, you might think your first duty is to ask yourself whether you're going to preach sermon series or go through a book of the Bible or you're going to follow the liturgical year and use the lectionary. I remember being a fledgling pastor and uh, one of my methods was to find a really great story and then go in search of a text to fit it. You know, uh, we've all done that. It's okay, but you should probably get over it. And uh, eventually I settled on that, you know, I would reflect upon a text of scripture and move from there to here, from then to now. And that would be my method, at least it should be. But today I want to take you a little deeper into this question, what to preach, and move from the issue of method to message. When we ask what to preach, we ought to at least have an idea of what is at stake in the answer. Right. When Paul defends his ministry to the Corinthians, and it seems like he's always defending his ministry to someone, which is actually a bit of a comfort to me. I don't know about you. He did, he did so by saying what he preached. And his answer might surprise us, but it should be burned into the brains of each of us who aspire to do this work. So before I say what he said, I want you to hear what Paul did not say in defending his ministry. He did not say, I preached the Bible. We say that, we say it all the time, we say it to defend our ministry, we usually say it to compare ourselves to someone we think doesn't preach the Bible, and it has become a kind of Baptist shibboleth for us, right? Which is a, a phrase, a term, whose meaning is less about what is actually being said than how we actually distinguish ourselves from somebody else by use of the term. Come on, most every preacher employs the Bible to preach. Right? Some wave it more than others when they preach, which then gives you the impression that they're holding close to it. Mm, maybe not. I remember when I was a young preacher, my first pastorate in Mobile, an older gentleman came up to me and he was very disturbed that I was not preaching the Bible. And, and the more we talked and I listened to him, I realized he was a great fan of Billy Graham. 
Billy Graham was his man, and Billy Graham, you know, always when he preached, held the Bible open in his left hand and preached like that, right? That was his way. Now, I was serving a church with a very small pulpit, and there was not room on the pulpit for my open Bible and my notes at the same time. So I would read the scripture, and then I would close the Bible and set it aside, and then I would go ahead and preach. Now, this man saw me set the Bible aside and believed that in doing so, I was setting the Bible aside. So, the next Sunday, I did nothing different, but this time I took the Bible and similar to this place right here, I just put it up there where they could see it. I perched it precariously on the edge of the top of the pulpit. And every once in a while, I'd point to it. Well, that man came up to me afterward and says, now that's what I'm talking about, preacher. You got with your Bible today. Some people do believe it's their duty to preach the Bible. Week by week. And they not only do that, but they tell you they're doing it when they're doing it, you know, which indirectly defends their authority as the pastor. Here's the thing their sermons may actually be nothing more than pop psychology or partisan politics or moralizing lessons about sex, but by God, they're preaching the Bible. In many cases, they're simply using the Bible to support whatever agenda they have, whether it is to get someone elected, to get a building built, right? Or to, I don't know, get a praise band to replace the choir. There's always a text. You can find one. The Bible's good for that. But proof texts from the Bible are not Bible preaching texts. So let me be as clear as I can be at this point. I think the whole thing about preaching the Bible is generally leading us astray and it's misleading our congregations about who we are and what we do. And what's more, it's not biblical. The text we choose to preach from may be a Bible passage, but the subject of preaching is always the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. If your preaching is strapped so tightly to the text that you miss the true theme of God's redemption of all things in and through Jesus Christ, then you aren't really a biblical preacher. You've missed the forest for the trees. You may be preaching the Bible, but you're not preaching the one message that saves and heals. My friend and colleague Curtis Freeman teaches at Duke Divinity School. He was just up visiting. He was telling me that he was recently back from Wittenberg, where he went on a trip with some others to Germany in anticipation, you know, of next year's 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. He was telling me about a coffee shop in Wittenberg that goes by the name Thesis 62. Now, if you look it up among Luther's 95 theses, Dr. Rue doesn't have to look it up, uh, but, but if you look it up, 
This number 62 that was included among those that Luther was said to have maybe nailed you know, to the chapel door there. Here's what it says. The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. Beautiful. That's it. For Luther, in his context, that meant first what it was not, and that is that the true treasure of the church was not the merit of the saints. Where Jesus ascended to, into their hearts, and through devotion to whom one could have a share of those merits for the sake of salvation, it meant that the gospel itself is where the saving power is. When we renovated our church some years ago, a man had grown up Lutheran and was a member now of our church, came up to me and said that he would pay for the new pulpit on one condition. He said that somewhere on the pulpit had to be a plaque or an engraving of a verse from the book of Romans because the book of Romans was his father's favorite. This stuff happens in church, you know. And so if you come to Wilshire, you will see when you preach right there at the top of the pulpit is a verse from the first chapter that says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. I will tell you that that was a little uncomfortable for my friend Rabbi David Stern when he came to preach for the first time at Wilshire. He got up into the pulpit, you know, and he, he looked at that and he looked over me and winked and I shrugged, you know, that it is what it is, you know. But the idea is that week by week we have to be reminded of what our task is, what we're really preaching, that the power is in that. It is not just about exegeting and exhorting upon a text itself, as if the scripture were some sort of magical talisman. No, the power is not in the words of the Bible, it is in the word of God, who is first Jesus himself. And that's the rub for many. The Greeks wanted wisdom, being lovers of it above all other people, and there was no room in their philosophy for the cross of Christ as it appeared to be weakness rather than strength, Jews wanted signs, indicators of the clear victory of the Messiah. There was no room in their vision for the cross of Christ as it appeared to be defeat rather than victory. The gospel of Christ crucified says, though, that there is wisdom in suffering and that there is a kind of victory that goes through the grave. So let's review for a moment. We are with Paul called to preach Christ crucified. The good news of the risen one whose suffering death made a way of life for all those who put their faith in him. If we are preaching Christ crucified, and not just the Bible per se, 
That assumes that we have a living Lord among us. Now, we are not just trying to understand ancient texts. We are trying to perceive the living Christ who is among us, who is alive and present among us through his spirit. And then we are trying to figure out what he is doing in the world and how that relates to what God has always been doing in the world. This is why we have to pay close attention to the ancient text and the current context. The church, you see, is a spirit community. We are called together by the living Christ who has promised to be with us whenever two or three are gathered together in his name. We are not a book club. Even if that book is a Bible, we are not a book club. We are not a bunch of nice people who gather together on Sundays and at other times to get a little inspiration from a really good tome of motivation. We exist because the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the gift of his spirit has made us a people. This is why we preach Christ and don't just teach the great wisdom and sayings of the master. It's the power of the risen Christ at work within us and among us that changes us. It's not just words about him that matter, no matter how inspired they may be. But there's one more thing we must hold close to if our preaching of the gospel is to be authentic. We preach Christ, yes, but we preach Christ crucified. That is to say, the Christ we preached suffered and died on a cross, and he didn't do that in order that we then would be able to avoid all suffering and death ourselves. That is prosperity gospel poppycock. Christ didn't suffer and die so that we could use him as a secret weapon to defeat all of our enemies by force or to lead our churches without pain or to gain some edge in our relationship to our neighbors. He called us to follow him in loving our neighbors, in doing what is right even if it hurts and costs even if we suffer for it, and in standing in solidarity with our neighbors, especially those who are weak and vulnerable and in need of an advocate. Many of you will be serving in churches, and you will need to get clear in your mind that your task is not to keep people happy. It's not to make them like you. It's not to keep the peace they will often tell you that is your job. But that's because inadvertently they will confuse the wisdom of the world with the gospel of Christ or they will confuse worldly winning, winning with spiritual victory. Your job is to keep the story straight. Keep it straight for your church about why you exist as the people of God. No one else wakes up every morning with that calling as much as you do. But if you are to do that well, you have to guard your own ambition.
and you have to keep watch over your own soul. You have to be willing to live and lead and preach as one who understands what spiritual success really means. The late Wesley scholar Albert Outler told the story of the warrior king Charles XII, who in 1716 visited a little seaport town named Ustad in the south of Sweden. King Charles arrived unexpectedly at the village for worship, and when the pastor realized that the king and his entourage had come to worship that day, he immediately was bumfuzzled and tried to figure out what to do now because it was such an unusual time. And he reflected on what he should do about his sermon. Should he preach the message he had prepared or to take this opportunity to praise King Charles and the royal family for their leadership of Sweden? He decided to lay his sermon aside. And after the service, he was greeting people at the back The king came through and greeted him. And a short while later, the church received a special gift from the king. The pastor called the congregation together to share in opening the gift. It was a large box. And when they opened it, it was a life-size crucifix. Attached to the cross was a note from the king that read, Let this crucifix hang on the pillar opposite the pulpit so that all who shall stand there will be reminded of their proper subject. I pray that you will always be so reminded. Amen.